I just approached the film as a love story rather than a horror film. Those are words from Agnes Goddard talking about her work on Claire Denis' 2001 film, Trouble Every Day. Seeing Faces in Movies is a podcast where each month I focus on the works of a different director or cinematographer, and each week I invite a guest on to discuss a film and the artist's filmography. I'm your host, Felicia Maroney, and this is a special features episode. And these monthly bonus episodes are outside of the filmographies of the current director in focus. Special features came about because I want to talk to someone I love about a film either they love or I love, and hopefully we both love. Today's film in question is one that my good friend Eugenia loves, and that's Claire Denis' Trouble Every Day. Quick synopsis of the film. Two American newlyweds in Paris experience a love so strong it almost devours them. The film stars Vincent Gallo as Shane Brown, Trisha Vesey as June Brown, Beatrice Daly as Corée, and Alex Deca as Léo. It's written by Claire Denis and Jean-Paul Fargo, cinematography by Agnès Godard, edited by Nelly Cartier, and music by Tindersticks. So my guest today is Eugenia. And we have known each other for longer than I think we even realize. <laughs> like, I think we met as like late teens. We've kept in touch over the years. And one of my longest, you know, longest term friends and whose film opinion I trust so much. She's an amazing filmmaker. And I'd love for you to introduce yourself, let the listeners know what you do, the film projects you have coming up, because I know you're working really hard on some stuff, and what your relationship is to cinema and Claire Denis. Well, it's been my pleasure to know you for, I think, close decade, more than a decade already. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, we both met uh, because we loved film, which is interesting. I'm Eugenia Gelbelman, and uh, I have been making uh, content or films or whatever you want to call it for the last, um, I guess, since 2013, so almost going on 10 years. I uh, have a feature film that I made about that came out like a year and a half ago, and it's called The White Goddess. <laughs> which is a maybe a title that is a little off-putting but <laughs> it's I took it from a Robert Graves book and it's about mythology so it's um sort of an exploration of uh, this mythological concept of like a single prehistoric goddess figure and it's through the lens of a, like a psychological thriller like misery anyway mm -hmm. so I have that it's on, it's on streaming and uh, yeah. yeah, I'm just sort of trying to like a lot of filmmakers who haven't broke yet, who haven't broken through yet. I'm just trying to keep working until something hits. <laughs> In the meantime, I teach film uh, screenwriting and uh, most of the people I know from who also because you and I both went to film school, not together, but you're actively doing stuff. And most of us have just resorted to making a podcast. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I which is great. I actively do stuff every like three months. So I don't know if that counts. Hey, that's more than most. 
Do you want to talk a little bit about how you got to film school, like where yeah. your love of film began? Yeah. Well, my love of film began very early on. I was, uh, some of my earliest memories is uh, watching movies. My dad had this huge laser disc collection uh, and I still have a soft spot nice. for laser discs. <laughs> and he would show me like these movies and he would show me things way too young. So like, like I was watching Terminator 2 when I was like four years old. And at that point, I didn't even understand. <laughs> but it was like my favorite movie ever. And then mm -hmm. he would show me, I don't know, Midnight Cowboy when I was like 13. And that messed me up for a while. <laughs> and I got into Woody Allen really hard when I was like 13, too. I saw Annie Hall. And then I was like obsessed with him for the rest of until I was like 25. I was obsessed with Woody Allen. <laughs> I always liked writing. I always liked reading and writing. So I always knew that I wanted to do some kind of writing. And I figured out that I wasn't too good at writing prose. But for some reason, the format of a screenplay was easier for me. So I am, um, I don't know, I, I initially I was going to go to med school. And then I realized I hated science and math. <laughs> Yeah. So I transitioned that into like history and literature. And then finally, I went to film school in 2013. And uh, I went to two, two different film programs, one in Canada, one in America. Yeah, in 2019, I got my MFA. And since then, I've been just out there trying to make a mark somewhere with my either work on other people's projects, which is always cool or try to get mm -hmm. my own stuff made. That's cool, though. We're doing a Cladini film. Do you want to talk about your relationship to her films before we get into this specific one? Yeah. So the first Claire Denis film I ever saw was uh, High Life. I would I would say that was memorable. Like her, I that imprinted Claire Denis in my consciousness because I'd never seen Claire Denis has a certain aesthetic that's very um it's very bold and very French and very uh mm -hmm. Well, feminist, I think, in in like a in a way that makes feminists uncomfortable, <laughs> and that was something about high life that really stuck with me. Then I honestly haven't seen. I wish I'd seen more of her films, but yeah, High Life was the first one, and since then I've seen maybe four other ones, including okay. Trouble Every Day. Now that's interesting, and you you did mention a point that about her films being feminist but a different brand of feminism and i i am going to bring that up later because i do have a question and i want to get into so yeah. it's interesting that you already brought that up for me it's weird so i went to a french school because in canada you either go to english school or a french school some go to schools that are mixed but i went to full french school when the teachers didn't feel like teaching they would put on a movie and the library had just catalogs of older movies typically from france because they were like oh as long as it's french you can screen it so i remember seeing like white material <laughs> like chocolate wow. both have i which you should not have been screening to like younger mm. kids but they were like oh it's french um but <laughs> that's why this white material <laughs> um young like i feel like i was 12 wow ish and i saw it a couple times throughout like elementary and high school yeah. because it was like oh this is the one cassette that we have that's white material i saw another one of hers but white material is the one that always sticks with me because they screen that one a lot because in their mind it was also like a history lesson <laughs> 
I need to see white material. I haven't gotten to it yet. It's good. Yeah. So my experiences at Finney stem from then and then as an adult, fully understanding what I was watching, realizing, oh, this woman's like a freak. <laughs> like, especially with High Life, where I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> it takes so. a minute with her. It takes a minute with to realize just how depraved that she can be. Trouble Every Day is just like outwardly like messed up, but yeah. then like some of her other films I find are more messed up than this one. But sublim- we'll get into that. Are subliminally messed up. Yes, which is to me more messed up. Yeah, more more messed up than me just watching cannibals on screen. For real. I'm gonna read the tagline. There's there was a couple taglines for this film, and I just picked the one that I thought was the funniest. Tagline for Trouble Every Day is I love you so much I could eat you. That's good. So a couple of facts about this film premiered at uh, Cannes. There was a huge controversy on it. People were walking out and fainting at the screening. I find funny when you read about that because there's always one movie a year where they're like, people were walking out of the screening. People Mm -hmm. were fainting. They were throwing up. I was reading an interview with her about it and someone asked her about the controversy and she said, I'm going to read a quote here. She said that she wasn't aware of people leaving or fainting and it was not very interesting to me. It's just gossip. It's weird to measure a film by how much scandal it makes or how much violence it contains. It feels like you're manipulating the audience. It is a very naive and innocent film, but in the end, it is what it is. Either people like it or they don't. And I love her for that. She doesn't uh, suffer fools. I like that. Exactly. And that festival is one that I'm becoming less and less enthusiastic about because I just don't trust the people that go to that festival because it is mainly film critics. So every year you get the one film that people were throwing up at and you get the one where people were clapping for like 45 minutes. (laughs) And it's like, why? (laughs) It seems to make less and less sense which films get celebrated at Cannes, other films. And like, why has Ruben Oslin won like twice? I don't know. (laughs) I respect them for occasionally recognizing people like Andre Arnold and Lynn Ramsey. But Mm -hmm. other than that, I don't know. The other facts that I have kind of tie into just the points of covering. So I think we can just, let's just get into the film. We'll see where it goes. One of the first points, just an off point. I think this is very much like a a film about Americans on vacation. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's a genre and like how things go wrong once they're taken out of, not even just Americans, I'm talking about like North Americans when we're Uh taken out of our element and just the horrors that come with it. I mean, obviously he was a little messed up beforehand, but shit gets real as they land in Paris. That brings me to the star of the film, which is Mm -hmm. Vincent Gallo. Mm -hmm. So you are one of the very few people in my entire life that could get me to willingly watch a Vincent Gallo movie as he's the star. He stresses me out. And it's weird. I need to defend him to play devil's advocate, (laughs) aka Vincent Gallo's advocate. He has a face made for cinema. Very striking face. It's hard to look away. That's the the problem. Yeah. Because I wanted to look away, but I can't. And it's also because he starts the film off for at least the first third of the film. He seems like a regular enough dude. And I was like, the quirks that are there, I'm like, is this just Vincent Gallo's quirks coming through or is this the character? Um, But I was like, oh, no, is Claire Denis going to make me think that Vincent Gallo is like a regular guy? Because I'm not prepared for that. (laughs) Then it switches. I think Claire Denis is the only filmmaker, including Vincent Gallo himself, who actually knew what to do with Vincent Gallo in a movie. 
like she really draws upon what his the nature of his appeal as a yes. presence, as a screen presence, and utilizes it to the best, the best way I've seen anyone do it, including Vincent Gallo. He has, I forgot the name of what it what it's called, but you know the like Rasputin, Rasputin type of uh with the big eyes, like a man mm-hmm. who looks a mesmer, but there's another word for it. A Svengali. Oh, okay. Yeah. It comes through in, in this film really well. <laughs> Another thing I do want to mention about Vincent Gallo, when I was reading a few articles, I came across this blog called Women in Revolt. And I just want to read a little quote from the writer because I completely agree. But she said, Gallo looks like and probably is the type of person you'd find masturbating behind a dumpster in New York City. Sounds about right. That's on the nose. (laughs) (laughs) And it's relevant because he does it kind of, well, it's in the bathroom. He does masturbate in this film, yes. Yeah, it's very intense. It's very close to the end, too. And there's also a scene where he's basically the the worst man you can encounter on a subway where he goes behind the woman. That scene is actually the most disturbing scene for me. Out of all of the bloodshed and guts of trouble every day, the scene where he's just on the subway and walks behind, stands next to that woman on the subway, Mm -hmm. like lurks over her and presses himself into her. That for me was the most uncomfortable scene of this. Yeah, which is interesting because I I would agree. Yes, there's some gore in this film, but the gore is what upsets me the least. It's just everything else. Because gore is whatever, because you can remove yourself from that. Most of us don't know cannibals. I won't be faced with that. I say most of us because I don't know. I can't speak for everyone. I don't know Army Hammer. I don't know any (laughs) But... Just to build off of what you were saying. Yeah, the parts of the film that are just straight up like horror movie gore. Mm -hmm. Uncomfortable and the sounds are not great to hear. Like I saw it in 35 millimeter um, at the Metrograph. And so on a big on a bigger screen, it was genuinely uncomfortable. And I actually had Mm -hmm. to just look away for the parts with the main actress who was playing Cora. But it was actually the other parts that were more normal and everyday and like banal that were the more sad, uncomfortable parts for me than the gore. That for me in any type of, especially because I don't typically watch horror films, but I do like stuff that makes me uncomfortable, which is weird because I'm more uncomfortable by like everyday things that are, that happen. So someone coming up behind you in a subway and pressing themselves against you is something that could happen. Yeah. You know, like but elements of being a woman that's just like horrifying. It's happened to us all. And unfortunately, it's not the last time. So those type of things are more tense because they're real. In my research on this, I was reading a lot of people going back and forth on, is this a horror film with elements of a love story or is this a love story with elements of horror because of the way she uses the genre and it's not a genre she's you know known for. So I think that's why there's a back and forth. I don't know how you feel. Well, I'm thinking about the way the movie opens and the Tinder stick soundtrack and the song that they have because the movie's set in Paris, which yeah. is, you know, 
city of love. <laughs> uh, the city of lights, the city of love, and it opens on the water and very pretty, kind of. And that song uh, that's very nice, that Tinder Six song, which is literally, I think, Trouble Every Day. So looking at it that way and the way it ends as well, I think it is a it's like a tragic love story, but with horror elements. So yeah, I don't think it's a straight up horror film. She says that too, like a quote from an interview she did was, there's not much violence in my film, but what there is springs from something very deep. I would say it's about love in a way and what happens when you tangle with something that is stronger than you. She also has stated this is more of a film with horror elements. And it's funny because I saw someone describe it as like a B-horror film. And I'm like, I don't know about that. I think that you can have, not to compare it to other films, or but something like a Haneke film where it's not straight up people getting murdered left, right, and center, but there's horror elements to it because it's terrifying what you're watching. She's utilizing cannibalism as a way to just demonstrate the fact that he went down a path that was something that he couldn't handle. And this is just them trying to maneuver that. It's symbol. The cannibalism is like symbolic for just lust, unbridled lust versus yeah. love and respect of marriage. And he doesn't know how to channel his love and respect for his wife with his animalistic like pat urges is what I felt like was. And if you really think about it, every European director is a horror movie director, but like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's I just- mean, you look at like Gaspar Noé, yeah. who. Like, I don't think he's making horror films, quote unquote, but they're horrifying. <laughs> it's just what European cinema tends tends yes. to be horrifying. <laughs> so they have a different sensibility than Americans. It's either just straight up murder or we got a lot of incest or a lot of pedophilia. Just... A lot of killing dogs, animals, killing pets. Yeah. <laughs> so they just go, they cover all bases. They really do. You know? <laughs> Maybe because Europe is like, they've been around longer, so they know, yeah. and America's a newer country, so we're like babies, but they're, they know the real darkness over there. You mentioned the wife, and I was wondering how you feel about the women in this film, because you have two women, they're completely different, and depending on what type of person you are, you can read it differently, how she's portraying these women, because you have the wife who's kind of just like, I don't know if she's either just a little stupid or ignorant or she's purposely just being like, oh, everything's fine. I'm just going to ignore this. He's gotten me a dog, a puppy, so we're all good. And then you have Kohei, who who is sex craved, essentially a monster and portraying those two, you know, binaries of women that we see a lot. And I think she's playing it up in a way that she's like, yeah, this is the binaries that people see in women, but people might read it as her not trying to subvert that. And I wonder how you feel about that, if that's her job to do that or just to kind of roll with it. So if I really look at it, I think the character of the wife makes the least sense to me as a character Mm -hmm. um, because she just sort of, yeah, she's just kind of there in this really strange, uh, confusing relationship with this man who it's hard to understand what she saw in him ever and why she's with him. <laughs> and as the film progresses, it doesn't make it any clearer why she is. No. <laughs> she just kind of comes off as a little bit of like a, a little bit dim. She kind of reminded me of like an Audrey Hepburn or like, not that Audrey Hepburn was ever dim, but like the way she's dressed 
Yeah, she she almost reads as like a t- a teenager, a teenage woman. Like she's not, but uh-huh. she, uh, like this is her first marriage. Maybe she, uh, I don't know why she went into it. Maybe she just said yes to the first guy who showed interest in her. But yes, yeah, so, so she's confusing to me. Who makes more sense to me is the Cora Beatrice Dahl's character. And what's interesting about Cora is that Kore is like the ancient Greek. It's Persephone. K-O-R-E, that's the name of, that's another name for Persephone, Queen of Hell. So there's like a myth, I feel like there's, she's playing maybe with almost like myth tropes, tropes from mythology. Otherwise, why would she name the central vampiric woman or I think it's alluding to that. So one of them is just like devolved into pure animalistic desire. And the other Mm -hmm. one has not been born. She's just like the most naive, virginal. He doesn't even touch her. If he can avoid touching her, he doesn't touch her. So yeah, she's playing with like this extreme versions of the whore, whore virgin thing. Yeah. Yeah. It took me a while to catch on to the fact that he wasn't touching her and why, because obviously he doesn't want to hurt her. Places all his like sick fantasies onto just random women who he comes across. Yes. Are disposable. Like whoever he feels disposable, that's who he concentrates on as like a prey. And because there's a third woman, there's the... uh, The maid. The maid, yeah. She's the saddest character for me. The third time I watched, I was like, this is, she's very, this is a sad arc. And I was trying to understand what her deal was because they kept going to her, but we weren't seeing her really outside of the hotel. And I was like, what's the purpose of this character other than just to have kind of staff to make the hotel be lived in but there has to be a purpose so when it came to her unfortunate purpose i was like my god that's dark yeah when i watched it again it just really depressed me because i was like she's just sort of living her sad little life Mm -hmm. trying to get by she has her boyfriend she has her little job she's just stealing little soaps from the hotel whatever and innocent but she's like lower on the ladder of life, like on the rung of life. And he just, uh, as many men, as historically men are wont to do, he exploits that. Because if she goes missing or she dies, no one's really going to be that concerned because she's just like, who is she? She's a maid at this hotel. And it's so sad, actually. The first time I didn't hit me, but like the the last time I watched it at the theater, I was like, this is the most sad. I felt so horrible about what happened to her. And I know it's yeah. just a good movie, but it actually depressed me. It is definitely the saddest death scene that you see on screen. That kind of ties into the length of that scene and the length of like other scenes in the film, especially when it came to the violent scenes. But that scene especially was it's long. Yeah, and it's and I think that's very much her thing. She loves to make people feel uncomfortable and she lingers for a lot longer than she needs to. Mm -hmm. And it serves what her purpose, you know, she knows that the audience is going to be sitting there being like, please cut away, please cut away. But she's like, no, I'm going to push it until I've gotten to where I find is the limit. You've seen a few of our other films. Do you enjoy that she does that? Not enjoy because it's not an enjoyable process, but do you think the way she does it serves the purpose of the story? Well, you know, I I kind of, my taste is a little more, like I like De Palma, I like Verhoeven. I yeah. like 
that are a little more extreme and a little pushing of the taboos and boundaries that we've set up. Because I feel like if we can't push those taboos in a movie, then where else can we really push them? Like it's the space. It's one of the few spaces we have to explore like the extremities of human, of the human, whatever condition. I, I I respect it. I don't know if I enjoy it. I don't know if I visit, yeah. enjoy watching a woman get raped and then eaten and then her, the way she's screaming. That's horrifying. Yeah. I I respect her for, for it. I respect that mm-hmm. she's willing to go there and that she's a, a woman filmmaker, which is not an easy thing to be, and that yes. she still does it. It's exactly. almost like F you to basically the same thing that men do. Like a male filmmaker, I think, would, would shoot that scene, but make it somehow not as grotesque. Yeah, he would shoot that she he would find a male filmmaker would find a way to shoot that scene and make it somehow titillating. But the way yes. she shoots it, it's like it's fucking horrifying. Yeah, because the <laughs> act that actual act is horrifying. It shouldn't be something that is easy for the viewer to watch because it's not something if you're going to have rape in your film, it yeah. should be making you as uncomfortable as make you, you want to yeah, fucking kill yourself. <laughs> yeah. The filmmakers you mentioned, I also am a huge fan of. Love my De Palma, Verhoeven, Schrader. Bringing it back to Denny being like woman filmmaker, some people not liking her work because it makes them uncomfortable. And how if a male director had directed those things, it would be seen as more artsy. I want to tie it back to something you mentioned at the top. If you think that this is a feminist film, if you think Claire is a feminist filmmaker, how you feel about that term in general? Yeah. (laughs) My feminism is more like of the early variety with like the 70s where women were burning bras and telling everyone to go fuck themselves. Like that's my tendency to appreciate that kind of thing, or it's like about liberation or whatever. So Claire Denis, I feel is, well, I don't think, I don't think even she would call herself a feminist or anything, but Maybe feminism is the wrong word, but it's from the point of a woman and there's this female ambivalence to things. There's this like, it's examining this stuff we've seen before. Like we've seen the cannibalism, we've seen the vampirism, we've seen Mm -hmm. all that, but it's examining it from this really interesting lens, like that hasn't been used really before. And she has her own very specific vision too. Like it's not just she's a woman filmmaker. She has her own very specific thing going on. I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I I don't enjoy calling films feminist films, mainly because, you know, we're in 2023 at this point and feminism, that word means something completely different to everyone Yours and I's feminism is different than exactly other women's feminism. Exactly. And sometimes I see films that are like as like a feminist film. And I was like, not the feminism that I associate exactly. with. Because there's a lot of feminist films that don't or feminist thoughts that don't take account. A lot of people, they are just very self-serving to them. Yeah. I don't like calling films feminist films. And I also don't know if she would consider herself a feminist. I think that she just is a woman. An artist, yeah. Doing her thing and yeah. doesn't care. If that to you is feminist, that's great. And if not, that's great. But she's just doing her own thing. So I think that that brings it back to what the essence of feminism is. Just because of films made by a woman or stars a woman does not mean it's feminist. Yeah, that's like a catch-all term that means, like you said, something different to everybody. 
Yeah, it's I, I just like that it's I like things that are from a point of view that I haven't seen before necessarily. If you look at the history of cinema, there is sort of one general way of looking at things, and it's coming from a male eye, coming from what a man looks sees. And women are so, if you look at female auteurs, they're all so different and they all have their own way of seeing things. So it's always exciting to see a woman take the camera and do something like crazy with it. So yeah, feminist isn't a good term. It's just like kind of, we're over that at this point. But uh, yeah, and it's not to say that I'm not, I I am a feminist. I just don't use that word to describe myself. I just am a woman who does my own thing. And exactly try and respect i want to say all people but some people don't deserve respect (laughs) (laughs) i'm i see myself more as a misanthrope really than anything else (laughs) if i had to find one word to describe my (laughs) is that i mostly dislike everybody except for like a few people (laughs) like yeah (laughs) well i'm flattered uh, one of the last points on my end that I wanted to bring up. So I was reading something on this blog called Spectrum Culture. A quote from it is, as in the cinema of Jane Campion, Denis is fond of surveying the thin lines that separate desire and disgust. So I can see Campion and Denis being lumped together. They both make films that are feature the real ugliness of people. They both happen to be women. I would not put them in the same league. They're both amazing just in their separate leagues. Like Mm -hmm. Jane Campion, for all the films that she's made, and a lot of them have uncomfortable things, is never displaying stuff as ugly as Denny is. I don't think that Jane Campion would ever make a trouble every day. Uh, Even something like In the Cut that's dark, it still has kind of a dreamy effect on it and that's not to her detriment like i love campion i will be doing a campion month and you'll be on it (laughs) because we both love her but for me when i was thinking of that quote and reading it and i was like they picked the wrong director to pair her with the one to pair her with is catherine brea (laughs) she's the one who's even probably more fucked up than claire denny yeah that's they're they're in a um race to the death over who can be more fucked up yes <laughs> they're in a really gladiatorial battle of french women filmmakers of who can be more upsetting that's a better comparison like if you compare her to someone like campion or lynn ramsey or andrea arnold like mm-hmm. it's only a very general comparison like yes all these filmmakers explore different issues from maybe the dark side of desire and like ambivalence around desire. But other than that, there's nothing else that's similar about them. But yeah, if you're really going to compare her to anyone, it's going to be the director of Fat Girl. (laughs) It just was funny because I hadn't been thinking about her because I try not to. (laughs) But when I read that... We always return to Catherine. (laughs) Every time we always talk about Fat Girl, every time we have a conversation about film campion's never even sweetie which is upsetting to me didn't ruin the rest of my day whereas like claire denis has ruined the rest of my month Catherine Poyot's fat girl has still ruined me it's been like close to two decades now since i saw that movie well not that long but it's been a long time and i think about it actively no that movie is seared into my consciousness it's just like yeah. always, like, somewhere subliminally i'm just seeing the end of fat girl <laughs> oh my god because I am maybe a little bit of a sadist, 
And I kind of want to do Fat Girl just because I hate myself, I guess. But I'm scared to rewatch it. You're the only person I know who could do it with me. But I need to like work I'm myself sado- up to that. I'm, I'm a sadomasochist. So I, if I had to, I could rewatch it. I'm not, eager, <laughs> I'm not eager to rewatch it. But if it was the Simons, I could do it. <laughs> yeah. I think once I build up the courage for it, I will, because I think I do need to rewatch it, but I'm legit scared. Like, I'm legit scared. (laughs) Yeah, I I really had no desire to return to that film in any recent, in any way. Uh, I got the idea pretty clearly from the first. Yeah, that's one of those one and done type of movies where you're like, okay, I got it. Got it. It was, you know. Thanks for nothing. Thanks for nothing, Catherine. (laughs) I think that that covers what I wanted to talk about the movie. I I want to pass it off to you and see if there's any points that you wanted to bring about the actual, you know, scenes in the film. Well, I just, this is something I read that I thought was interesting where someone, Mm -hmm. you mentioned how it's interesting that, um, so Gallo and Dal Dale are playing the male and female version of the same thing. Like they're both these vampires who mm-hmm. you know crave human flesh. But he makes it to the end and gets to live a life, and she is extinguished for the same thing, which is an interesting, I think, story choice to have her be like she almost has to i feel like there's no other way for her character to go except be killed with him the possibility of him continuing the rest of his life the way he is as a possibility i did find that interesting and i was like i was wondering what she kind of meant by that and first when it first ended i was like well she was so far gone there was no there was no way of her recovering he can continue to pretend to be a human being but she is like an animal (laughs) <laughs> and I'm wondering if it just it gets worse the longer yeah. you have the disease and maybe it hadn't gotten there for him or if it's a whole different thing where it was like, oh, we have to kill her off because it's interesting the way you can read that movie because and that ending because you could be like, is she being punished for being, you know, this sex crazed maniac and he is just a man who is seems to be able to contain it and he's not hurting his wife so he's redeemable i I read it the generic way that like the same desire in women is far more unacceptable in in Mm -hmm. society than like men men can live their whole life uh, having killed their wife and and pretend they didn't kill their wife you know yeah something in real life that happens you know like men can just like live their whole life pretending they didn't kill anybody when they did. But women kind of get found out immediately. Like it's so like yeah. outside the the bounds of what's humanly acceptable for a woman to have the same kind of <laughs> stuff that men have that yeah, she she just can't go on like that. <laughs> well, yeah, it's like, you know, the the imbalance there of like two people could have the same sexual appetite, but the woman is always going to be seen differently. Yeah. She's always going to be like, you know, beyond yeah. the of what, anything that's acceptable. <laughs> like, yeah. And there's like terms, you know, thrown at her, which is very triggering to be, you know, so a woman who enjoys sex, but is just seen as kind of dirty, what the film is kind of mirroring. But I think she's just saying this is the way things are. This is the way people view this as opposed to being like, this is how I feel. Because I yeah. can't imagine Claire Denis has any issues with women. Oh enjoying sex clearly not so she's just saying this is the way people 
would view these two people. And I'm just going to show this to you. It feels very honest. Like it feels like yes. yeah, how it is. Like even on a lesser scale, like it doesn't have to be eating and murdering people, but just yeah. a woman's sexual desire is so much more like people get really upset by that Yes, <laughs> a lot more than they do by the same male sexual desires. So it's like, yeah, it feels very true to the world we live in. And I don't yeah. know if she's actively like set out to make that point. I'm sure that's not what she was doing, but like, that's what comes through for me. Exactly. I agree. Also, I, I mean, I don't know. I can't speak for her. I don't think she's sitting at, at her desk being like, oh, I need to have these themes in here. <laughs> no. I think it's just like so embedded in her yeah, exactly. that it naturally exactly. comes out as opposed to her being like, oh, I need to show the public, you know, how disgusting their mindset is. She does it in a very pure, artistic, like poetic way. It's not. Mm-hmm. Mm. again it feels very instinctual like her filmmaking feels very like from the gut like it feels very much like it's coming from a not intellectualized place yes feeling a place is just this is what i feel and i'm gonna express it even when i do hate a film of hers (laughs) i still respect (laughs) what she did because i know she's not preaching anything to me no Uh, and she's not looking down on anyone She's just a real person who happens to be making films. I guess one other thing that I noticed was the way she shoots her bodies, like people touching each other. And in this film, it almost looks like, a, it almost feels like an autopsy. Like the way she yeah. puts her camera over the their bodies is just so, it's not, it's not sexual. It's like no. something else, it, which I find to be something very distinct about this movie. Like you look at the way she puts her camera over their bodies and it's so, yeah, you're looking, it looks like you're looking at someone on a butcher's block or something. It's really fucking mm-hmm. disturbing. <laughs> I think that she makes really ugly movies and I'm not talking about visually I'm talking about viscerally what you're seeing yeah they're ugly because humanity in real life is ugly even Paris is ugly in this movie like Paris yeah. it makes you not want to ever go to Paris no if I know that you know this possibility of Vincent Gallo creeping up <gasps> on me in Paris I don't know if I'm going back <laughs> there was one really funny comment on Letterbox about about this movie that said this isn't a movie this is just a documentary about what happened <laughs> to Gallo when he goes on vacation <laughs> One other thing I want to say is Vincent Gallo mm. said he has absolutely no memory of making this film, which I find very odd. That's what he said. He's like, I literally have no whatsoever, no memory of the making of this film. And I'm like, what were you in a trance or something? <laughs> yeah. Were you messed up on drugs the entire time? Because I don't remember anything. Yeah. For me, this is the best Vincent Gallo film. I like it. Oh, better yeah. His, I like it better than his films about himself. I like this. Uh. Film. That's the thing. I think that he needs to be directed by someone. And I think that he should have just stayed a writer and directed his films without starring in them. Because a lot of his films, even something like a brown bunny is a great film in terms of like the way it's directed is great. And the writing is great. It's him that he pisses me off in that movie. Because I was like, this movie is now just like a, (laughs) you just staring at yourself in the mirror. And I was like, dude, there's other people I want to see. Can we go back to Chloe? He's so self-obsessed, singularly neurotically egotistical. I love his movies because it's just like directed by Vincent Gallo, starring Vincent Gallo, by Vincent Gallo, soundtrack, hair, makeup. It's like, sir, 
calm down. <laughs> like we need to relax. Yeah, he's the problem. He really is the problem in his <laughs> own films. He really is. He could have had a great career as an actor because I really think he's a talented actor. He I think Vincent Gallo he thinks he's fucked up, but he's not compared to Claire Denis. Exactly. You know, she would eat him up. And she probably did. That's probably why he has no memory of this That's movie. Why he yeah. He blacked out from the trauma of Claire Denis. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, oh, I'm not in power right now. I'm not being a psychotic and telling everyone what to do Claire Denis. <laughs> I, can't take, I can't take this. Like, like, I like him and actually, like, Julie Delpy has him in one scene in her movie Two Days in New York. And it's just... Really? This, yeah. It's a, I don't remember him in it. He, It's one scene. He buys her soul. She's selling her soul. <laughs> and he's the buyer. And they have one thing where they're across the table from each other and they're just like have this conversation about why he bought her soul. And it's the funniest part of the for me for the whole movie because the, the chemistry is so funny. And like he needs to be in movies directed by French women like like Catherine Brayage should make a movie with Vincent Gallo. I, I mean, I'm surprised she hasn't. But like that, I don't know if I could. That would require a lot of meditation prior to me watching that. Like that, that would push me over the edge. I think I might have to like... just give up altogether. <laughs> that would be extreme cinema. That would be too much. Yeah, whatever horror films that they're touting as like the scariest film of all time, like no, that is it's that hasn't even been made, and it's already the scariest film of all time. <laughs> The concept of it it terrifies me. Fat Girl 2. That's the movie she goes out on. Fat Girl 2 with starring Vincent Gallo. (laughs) My God. I just came up with the worst movie that ever was. (laughs) I'm sorry. Honestly, I would love it if it was just called Fat Girl 2. Not like a (laughs) subtitle with it, just Fat Girl 2. People like, that did not need a sequel. Fat Girl 2. Yeah. We're not getting that much of a new wave of directors who are really disturbing. There's ones that think they are, but they're not. But they're not really like the Ariasters of the world. You're not that like whatever. You know, Midsummer was very upsetting, but you're not. You're no Catherine Brayot, man. Calm down. No, <laughs> no one really is. She's oh. her own thing. She's really her own thing, which is good. I don't know if we need multiple of those. She you can just have that. Me. Yeah, I mean, Fat Girl is one of the earliest criterions. Is it? Yeah, that's how I watched it because it was like I borrowed it from my local library, actually. I love that. Because I, <laughs> I was like, oh, it's a criterion movie. So let me just like blind watch it, not reading anything what? about it. Oh my God. Thinking it was just some film about teenagers on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> I was sorely mistaken. You know, that's always the most fun type of movie going experience is just blindly renting Mm -hmm. a movie and then just watch and it being like the weirdest movie ever and you not knowing and then watching it be like, what the hell was that? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Those are usually the ones that stick with you. Yeah. As opposed to going into it, anticipating that it'll be super weird. Yeah. That was like me with Dead Man, Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man. Mm Mm-hmm. I had a Johnny Depp phase as a teenage girl. So like we all did. I just went to Blockbuster and rented any movie they had with Johnny Depp in it. So I rented Dead Man and then I put it on. I was like 13. I was like, what the fuck is this? That was definitely the first Jarmish I watched. Me too. That was my first 
That was my first Jarmouche too. <laughs> I was like, wow, I'm a real cinephile. I just watched a really <laughs> fucking weird movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not to go on a full tangent, but it's always interesting because I also went through a huge Johnny Depp fan. Like, I get roasted for it from my family because I was like madly in love with him. It was real. Uh, at that point it was real yeah yeah exactly and because of the way his career was by the time that you and i were getting into him like he was older at this point so he'd already gone through the the 90s early 2000s where he was working with like all these directors that we now respect but when we were watching those movies like i remember seeing the ninth gate the polanski one and being like what (laughs) the hell is happening in this movie that was probably also the first polanski i saw (laughs) Just like random ones. I love yeah. how we both got introduced to like the the big directors art directors mm-hmm. through Johnny Depp. <laughs> that's it's that's how it should be though. I think that's valid. With, that's valid. With any like young person getting into films, often it's either it's typically like a star that you're into, an older star who will bring you back to like the older stuff, and that's how you branch out. I think that's how it should be. I think that's how a lot of girls who are now film yeah. pros. <laughs> got radicalized is just by renting a Johnny Depp or whatever, you know, whatever film. And it was directed by a Polanski. And suddenly you've watched every single, like, suddenly you're watching Leo Carax movies for Snow reason. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like suddenly you're depressed and, <laughs> and your life is down the drain and you're watching movie. <laughs> oh, Johnny man. Depp blockbuster to movie pipeline. <laughs> yeah. My God, I can't even, man, I can make a whole podcast about <laughs> the weird stuff I got into because of stars when I was a teenager, like my Daniel Day-Lewis phase, as everyone should also have a Daniel That's Day-Lewis a phase. phase. I had a Dustin Hoffman, Tim Robbins phase. That was effed up. Uh, yes, I love your Tim Robbins phase. That's my favorite thing about you. I had a Tim Roth phase. <laughs> See, we're both, I love it. We're both equally messed up, but in slightly different ways. Yeah. (laughs) Just weird old white men. And it's like, what the fuck? Essentially, yes. It's like my my go-to is just weird older (laughs) white men. I love it. Who have nothing really to offer other than just being like disturbingly (laughs) attractive to only certain people. To only only you, singularly. Yeah. the only thing i missed about the early 2000s me too i was the only thing it's like just me watching dustin hoffman movies or like early pacino and just being and yeah yeah and just totally making me into a crazy movie obsessed i don't know spinster (laughs) yeah to where to where we are today i wouldn't change too much i would honestly i wouldn't change it it was a good time so the last segment, which is called End Credits, I have two questions for you that I ask every guest. As you've seen a few of her films, Denny films, if someone came up to you and asked you what film they should start with if they've never seen a Claire Denny film before, what film would you recommend? Is it Trouble Every Day? If so, why? And if it's not, what film is it? I feel like if I said Trouble Every Day, it wouldn't be representative. It would be I would be starting with the most extreme Mm-hmm. the most sort of uh outwardly most outwardly unsettling denise so maybe i would say just high life because it's more recent it yeah. has 
Robert Pattinson in it, everyone that likes Batman Pattinson and uh and it's it's actually a decent film high life. So yeah, I would I would probably say high life. You don't want to start with a Vincent Gallo movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, but I agree what you're saying. It's This is a great film, but sometimes when you want to introduce someone to a director, you don't want to go for the one that's the yeah. most. It is her, but sometimes you want to give them a film that will rope them in. This might deter them if they haven't watched other films of hers yet. Whereas like High Life, I, I agree. I thought of High Life too. Mine was white material only because I just have that memory of it. Yeah. And it's a more kind of... Her being more on the cerebral side of messed up, but it's not fully messed up. It's just, it's a more kind of relaxed story. But High Life would also be a great one because it is a great story with those elements that kind of are jarring, like the Binash stuff. Anytime there's like a seasoned French actress that shows up in a movie, like a Binash or Isabelle Huppin, where you're like, shit's going to go down. Like, she's here to fuck shit up. She's not here to relax. You see any French actress in a film, you know you're in for something. There's something yeah. weird that's happening. <laughs> it's like you could just be watching the most relaxed film and Isabel Pass shows up and you're like, okay, there we go. Someone's sperm is getting harvested against their will. <laughs> the second question is, if you are creating a double bill either for yourself or someone else, what film would you pair this one with? And it doesn't need to be a Denis film. Too. Maybe Byzantium? I haven't seen that. Oh, that's pretty good. But it's by um, the guy who, that Irish director who did The Crying Game. Oh, is that um, Neil Jordan? Yeah, Neil Jordan. Now, maybe Byzantium, because that's also about female, thematically similar, but by a dude. But it's also a good movie. I actually really like Sir Sharonin is in it. And, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's 2012, and it's Gemma Arterton. Arterton and she's oh, yeah. Sir Sharonin. Okay. I think that's a good double bill. Byzantium and Trouble Every Day. Byzantium's more fun than Trouble yeah. Every Day. Yeah. Neil Jordan's an interesting director, too. He gets a lot of flack from people, but then people who do like him like him a lot. And I like a lot of his stuff. Neil um, Jordan gets flack? For what? For being, like, fun? <laughs> people hate fun. They people really do. Hate, people hate fun, especially lately. Life is short um, but that's my thing, because I, I recently watched Obsession, the De Palma film, which is De Palma and Schrader. Like, Schrader and him wrote it together, and it's like... I don't think I've seen it. Oh, you should 100% watch it, because you'd love it. Yeah. It's just, like, them dialed up all the way, and people rip on the film, and I'm like, why can't you just enjoy people being over the top and yeah, fun? What makes, what makes people so upset about having a good time <laughs> at the movies? Not to bring it back to comfort of strangers, but if you read what people say about it, and they're like, nothing happens. This is stupid. And I'm like, ah, I get so mad. Schrader is also hated on way too much. Yeah, people get really upset about him because he's like not always, he's a little problematic and people get upset about it. <laughs> he's not hurting anybody. He just, you know, he just wants to direct the canyons. Leave him alone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just let him live. He's He's earned the right to. Wait, but I'm definitely going to see Obsession. That's on my list. Obsession. I think you'd like it. Yeah, my pick for the double bill. And for some reason, I was having a bit of difficulty pairing it. And then it hit earlier today. I was like, oh, I would pair it with Cronenberg's Crash. Because I think it's not, you know, directly the same. But I think, you know, it's this weird sexual desire and attraction from mm -hmm. violent 
acts or violent accidents that happen. And I just think it would be heavy to watch both of those back to back. Those are two tastes that taste great together. That's a good pairing. Yeah. They're very much on the same effed up wavelength. That's good. yes. Byzantium is more just thematically similar, but the crash and this have a deeper vi- vibration that that fits. They fit together. Spader, a little Spader, a little Vincent Gallo. <laughs> Gallo, who I'm sure thinks he's a spader. Kind of, yeah. He wishes he was spader. <laughs> a lot of people wish they were spader and they will never get to his status. He's too ugly to be James Spader. <laughs> <laughs> when you think about it, they're equally like sexually, you know, kind of disturbing people. Yeah, perverse. It's okay with Spader because Spader is angelic and beautiful and looks it, like that's the thing. It's a like Adonis. <laughs> That's important, though. Like, you can't just, if you're going to make a sick sexual movie, casting someone as just viscerally disturbing as Gallo is like a choice. That's a choice. But he works well in it. He does. He does. They also don't really, they don't make movies like that anymore. I think there seems to be a weird, not weird, but it seems to be a slow resurgence of it that I'm seeing random films pop out that are supposedly now erotic thrillers. Yeah, like Sanctuary, which I haven't seen yet. Yeah. Christopher Abbott, who's trying to be, I think Christopher Abbott is trying to fill the niche of Spader. I, I, yeah. I don't think he's going to fill that niche, but good Now, for him. he's not a Spader, <laughs> but like I do appreciate the effort because I do I like him. Yeah, yeah. I like that he's like putting it out there like that. Good for yeah. him. <laughs> a for effort for always wanting to be abused by women on screen. I will watch it. Too. Adam Driver kind of sometimes likes to do something like that, but he hasn't done anything. Sometimes, and I think he started off his career that way he with, did. you know, girls. And then I guess for some reason he feels the need to provide for his kids in an intense way where he's working all these films that can't don't need to be can't made. Stand it. What a loser trying to provide for his family. <laughs> like, oh dear. I was me. like, how much, how much food do they need, really? Go back to making art films. How many vacations at the Four Seasons do you need, (laughs) man? Calm down. (laughs) Like, I don't ever need to see a dinosaur movie with you in it, which I I still haven't watched. I still haven't seen it either. No. That movie feels like a fake movie that, like, would be on girls. Like, uh, his character did a fake movie on dinosaurs. Yeah, because I forgot his character was an actor in that movie or that show. Yeah. I guess he feels like he did his time because doing six years of a Lena Dunham show is maybe equivalent to doing one Claire Denis film. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he did his time. Now he's going to do dinosaur movies and Star Wars for the rest of his life. I don't know. I guess so. He's got a couple good stuff coming out, though. Like, I know he's in the... Is he not in the, the Coppola? Or oh, is he I not? Guess. Oh, yeah. He I is. think he is. And then he's in the Michael Mann movie, his newest one, so... Yeah, about it's the- like he'll give us a good year of good stuff, and then the following year will just be like trash. Well, you know, I can respect that enough. That's fine. Yeah, sort of the Oscar Isaac model too. Just like yeah, same with like even like a Cassavetes. He would do that. Like whenever you'd see him acting, it was clearly because he needed the money for his own movie. So I respect that. I don't begrudge them their stupid movies. Yeah, it's like I whatever. Do- I don't need to watch it. Yeah, I do a little, but I don't. Yeah, I don't need to see them. The Coppola film, that's like my movie of the, that's like my big, that's my Barbenheimer. I can't wait for that film. 
The Francis Ford one? Yeah, Francis Ford Coppola, yeah. Yeah, was it Megalopolis or something? Megalo- yeah, I was I was going to say Metropolis. I'm like, no, I'm I don't even know if I said it properly. All yeah. I know is I'm going to see it. Yeah, I can't wait for it. I'm like, oh my oh, God. Oh, same. I love that he just was like, I'm going to fund this out of my own pocket. <laughs> love it. Fun fact, uh, Coppola, one of the few directors who's got Gallo in a, a real movie. Which one is it? Tetro. Oh, I haven't seen that one yet. And that's the one I was thinking of when I was like, oh, I can see that, you know, his images in some other films. It didn't hit with me. It was a little boring for me, but. Is that like early 2000s? Yeah, yeah, something like that. 2011 or 10. It's it's a strange movie. I didn't connect with it really, but there's a lot of people who like it. Oh, yeah. I don't know. There's always like a lot of talks around his films as, you know, post basically the seventies. People have had problems with his films. I, I like his stuff, but I'm I'm very excited for this one. And I think it's yeah. his I think it is his very last one. I think so. I think this yeah. is his baby eyes wide shut. <laughs> hey, go off you know. I don't, with want the bang. Him, I don't want him to be dead. I'm just saying no. like, it's his last film probably yeah i respect someone when who's like i just gonna retire like i can't imagine still working at that age i'd be like i just want to be left alone but i do respect the drive i respect it yeah i mean i but, guess if you love something like that and you're good at it it's not really work it's just like you being an artist well exactly that's everyone's dream in life to well, not yeah. actually have to work just that do something you actually people, love very few people get to experience yeah <laughs> One can only hope. Exactly. <laughs> One can only aspire to that kind of life. Well, I think that we covered, I think we covered to the best of our ability. I think we got into some pretty interesting topics on Trouble Every Day, which is like a very complex film mm-hmm. from a great director. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I, I'm so happy to have you. I'm always excited to talk to you. And I, love you. I can't wait to have you on again. We'll see how this edits. We'll see if there's any usable material. But thank you for having me There on. will and be. I had such a fun time. This is like my favorite thing to do is just to talk shit about films with you. <laughs> Same. Also, thank you for getting me to finally watch Trouble Every Day because this was a first watch for me. You're welcome. I'm, I like to traumatize people. You're welcome. <laughs> Seeing Faces in Movies is an official podcast of the Arroyo Film Club. It's hosted and edited by Felicia Maroney, intro music by Lamar Walker, and additional help from Dara McCraft. If you like what you've heard, let us know at seeingfacesinmovies.com or send us an email at seeingfacesinmovies at gmail.com. And while you're at it, please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcast. Until next time. <laughs>